excited that our guest today, Andy Hessick, has agreed to join us, even though my impression is that unlike everybody else who's been on this podcast, Andy is not uh, obsessed with the truly obscure world of sovereign debt. However, he knows stuff that we definitely don't know. Actually, Mark knows a little bit, but I don't. And so we invited him to come and educate us. Now, to provide a little bit of background, the IMF released its report on the state of the sovereign debt world and particularly sovereign debt restructuring on October 1st of this year. And Mark and I have talked a little bit about it, but there's one aspect of that report that we have avoided talking about in part because we find it very difficult. And I say this even though the primary reference in the IMF's report is a couple of blog posts by Mark. And uh, I should state for the record that I'm very jealous uh, that Mark's blog posts were cited in the IMF report. However, our question is about uh, that material that was important enough for the IMF to talk about. And that has to do with the relationship between judgments from federal courts in the US and contract clauses and how they intersect. But as a threshold matter, Andy, first, welcome. And second, might you give us the basics of what a judgment is? Well, thank you, me too, and Mark for, uh, for having me on to talk about this stuff. Um, a judgment, so we should think of a judgment as it's a ruling that resolves a dispute. When people have a dispute, a, a judgment is the thing that resolves it. And it settles rights and obligations. So it, it does it by creating sort of a little mini law that just applies to the parties. It's, it's dispositive and, uh, and it is enforceable as law. And what distinguishes it, so its nature as, as dispositive and having the force of law, that's what distinguishes it from advice or recommendation. It, it is an order that the parties can enforce. And a little side note, one thing that really uh, you know, people seem to confuse all the time is, the, is opinions and judgments. And it's really important to distinguish the two of them. So judgments are the things that actually resolve disputes. They are the actual orders that are enforceable. Opinions are just explanations for the judgments. Their explanations are justifications. And so it's really important to realize that the core function of courts is to issue judgments to resolve disputes that settle these rights and obligations. And that's why judges are called judges. So Andy, let me follow up on that. And I'm, I am, uh, I'm especially excited that you're here because Me Too and I, I wouldn't say that we have had a disagreement um, about the question we're, we're eventually gonna start talking about, but we have been, um, we've been sort of kind of playfully disagreeing, really just sort of struggling our way through thinking about it, which uh, will wind up being a question about who has the power to change a judgment and, and can parties agree to do that by contract. But I guess if we can stick 
just kind of at the level, um, uh, the introductory level that I need, at least at the moment. Can you say a bit about that? Like, like a money judgment for a uh, million dollars, let's say, um, that a, a trial court, a federal district court enters. After the fact, who has the power to change that? And, and under what circumstances? Like, like the president, Congress, the, the litigants? Like, like what, what are the rules governing people's ability to change the judgment once it's entered? Yeah, so it's a good question. So judgments that the judgments producing a judgment state, there's they're the core power of the judicial power. It's what the judiciary does. Uh, and in the federal system, that judicial power to enter judgments is assigned to the courts. Um, so it's just like Article One, say, assigns the legislative power to Congress to enact laws. You know, for the judicial power, that's the power to issue judgments, and it is assigned to the Article Three courts. Now, what this means is that no one outside of Article Three can issue a judgment, and it also means that no one outside of Article Three can alter a judgment. The president can't alter a judgment, um, and Congress can't alter a judgment. No less than say the courts can't alter legislation that Congress writes. Courts can't sort of legislate. Uh, so, um, so no one outside of Article Three can alter judgments. Now, I say that, but I do want to point out there, there there are arguably tiny exceptions, and they're explicit in the Constitution. Um, and the main exception is the pardon power. The, the Constitution very specifically gives the pardon power to the president, which can abrogate a, a judgment in a criminal case. Thankfully, that's rarely used. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for better or for worse, that's right. Um, so uh, what this also means, though, is that private parties can't alter judgments because the, the, the judgment power is given to the Article Three courts. So uh, just as private parties can't alter legislation by their agreements, they also can't alter judgments because only the courts can. So Andy, um, the, the, the reason Mark and I have been interested in this question and puzzled by it for some time has to do with contract provisions in sovereign debt instruments. And uh, one contract provision in particular has become important in the context of Venezuela's uh, sort of very protracted life in a state of default. In most sovereign debt restructurings, uh, after the sovereign defaults or often before the default occurs, the creditors and the debtor will enter into a new agreement and things will flow from there. But on those occasions where, for whatever reason, default occurs and a restructuring takes a long time to happen. In that interim period, you can have unhappy creditors seeking judgments. Now, the question then is, once the creditors and debtors debtor come to the table and renegotiate the terms, what happens to the judgments? Uh, what you just said seemed to be that you can't, 
the parties cannot alter the judgment. So does that mean that the only people who can do the restructuring, meaning you know, take $50 instead of the $100 that is on the judgment piece of paper, are the ones who did not get a judgment, who sort of refrained from going to court and seeking the judgment? Yeah, so the people who didn't get a judgment, they can restructure and ask for, you know, they can reset their rights and their liabilities, and they can, you know, change the amount of money that they're entitled to under the contract. But um, for those people who have already obtained a judgment, uh, that judgment can't be altered by contract. It can't be altered by an agreement among the other creditors. It, um, the judgment is, it, it, it establishes new rights. It establishes the right in the person who has secured the judgment to recover the money damages. And no one can alter it outside of the courts. Now, I do want to be clear, though, that um, they can't alter the judgment, but it's but you could, I mean, try to get around it. You could try to say contract with the person who secured the judgment and get them to agree to take less money or to disperse part of the judgment that they received, but they would have to agree to it. Um, they, you can't alter the judgment itself. Only the courts can. It seems like just from a, to be a bit contrarian, even though this is um, this is consistent with what I have always assumed to be to be true, without really having the expertise to to explain why. But it seems um, how to put this, like thinking functionally about the federal courts and leaving kind of constitutional stuff aside, which I like to do because I don't really know anything about the constitution. Um, you know, like I could imagine, it makes sense to me to, to say people shouldn't be able to negate judicial opinions. Um, they shouldn't be able to, to eliminate the kind of public goods that the court system creates. You know, that's like they're taking the subsidy, uh, the public subsidy that the courts get and, and they're deriving a benefit from that. So if an opinion comes out that one party doesn't like, there's something problematic about negating that opinion, like a settlement that says, judge, you have to withdraw that opinion. I know those are, are controversial and I get that. But the judgment sounds totally personal. It sounds like something that only the parties themselves have a, a particular interest in. So that seems to me like it ought to be the kind of thing that they should be able to modify by contract. Does that not, does that not sound persuasive? Can we not filter that through some constitutional understanding to make that the outcome? And can I, uh, Andy, can I add to uh, Mark's question, please? It's so sure. that it, what if the parties agree ahead of time that certain provisions will apply even after a judgment is granted. Um, after all, contract law is uh, the paradigmatic uh, private law. So the parties get to make the law among between themselves, or if there's more than a few, you know, in, in among the members of the group. Wouldn't a court 
respect those provisions that are meant to apply even in the context of a judgment? Right. So let me talk about Mark's question first, and then I'll uh, and then I'll get to yours, which raises a really interesting issue. So, uh, so it is true that um, the parties in, in in the run of the mill case, the parties are the people with something at stake uh, when a judgment is rendered, as opposed to say an opinion, which other people might look to for precedent to figure out what the law is. But the parties have gone to the sort of the government subsidized institution to resolve their disputes. They've gone to the courts. They have not arbitrated or, um, or done something else. And by doing that, they have subjected themselves to the government system. And the way the government resolves disputes is through the judicial power and the judicial power produces judgments. And those judgments are, uh, you know, they're dispositive and they resolve rights and obligations. They set those things. Um, so it's true that they're the ones who have something, it, it, they might have something at stake that, um, and it doesn't affect the public sort of generally, but that doesn't mean that they can sort of intrude on the judicial power to, um, you know, for their, for their own ends through a contract. Again, I think it's useful to think about it in terms of legislation. If there was a law that um, set some rights between the parties, we wouldn't say that the parties could change the legislation through agreement. We might say they might be able to contract around it, but they can't, uh, they can't change the legislation itself. And, um, and judgments just operate the same way. And can now, I can I just interject? I'm, I'm sorry. Bef before I want to interject one more time before you deal with Me Too's question, but I'll shut up until that time. That's uh, now. What if you agreed ahead of time? It, certainly, the court can enter a judgment uh, that enforces that enforces the contract. And if the contract says, "Hey, we agreed ahead of time that there might be some sort of modification to the damage award in the future," um, a judge theoretically could enter. That kind of that kind of judgment. I've never seen it go in that direction. I've never seen a sort of yeah. Here we agree to award you some damages, but we might claw some damages back if a condition has been met. But I have seen it go in the other direction, where it says like, um, please do the following thing, like repair a piece of land, and if you don't repair it, then uh, then you have to pay damages. The judgment can embody all of that. Um, now, even though a court could enter a judgment like that, there are reasons that it wouldn't want to. Um, There's sort of the practical problems of maybe not being able to get the money back. But the other one is that um, the court could be really reluctant to continue to exercise jurisdiction over a dispute. One of the real advantages of money damages is that uh, the judgment just resolves the dispute and the court is just done with it and it doesn't have to worry about it. Um, Contrast that with an injunction where they have ongoing jurisdiction. Uh, they keep the case on the docket. Parties return to enforce the injunction, consumes judicial resources. Uh, with damages, you don't have that. But if you had some sort of condition where damages could be clawed back, then, um, then the courts would keep it on their dockets. Uh, and you know, it, it would consume judicial resources in, uh, in a way that courts try to avoid with damage actions. 
that the last the last two points you made more or less answered the the question I was going to interject with, which is I'm going to ask it anyway, but you can you can sort of hand wave it away if you want. So it sounds like these would be weird contracts, but you and I could agree by contract to make a court enter a certain kind of judgment. Like you you would file a complaint asking for a certain kind of relief, and I would default. And and you know in effect we could force the court to act, and we could. We could, by contract, sort of negate a judgment. Like you could agree to mark a judgment as satisfied, but it sounds like the one thing we can't do is just change a judgment. Like you, the judgment's a hundred, but no judge, we've agreed that it should be fifty. That's all. That's off the table, even though we can, by contract, produce the judgment in the first place, and we can wipe it off the map if we want to. Also, that's that. That's right. There's a difference between ex ante notice about what the judgment would contain and ex post after the court has ruled and created its judgment, um, the parties can't come in and just alter it. Again, they can contract around it, but they can't alter the judgment itself. So Andy, uh, we we should probably go to a break soon uh, before we have our next uh, salvo of questions. But um, I, I have one last question that is probably trivial, which is, are the understandings of judgments uh, different across states and between uh, states and the federal government? Or is it sort of, is, is the concept uh, basically the same? So it's a great question. It's a hard question. So the idea of judgments is pretty set in that um, judgments are things that dispositively render uh, resolve disputes. Now, as for who has the power to alter them, over time, the states at, at various points have allowed legislatures to alter judgments. Uh, that caused real problems. Connecticut was, is, is the historic example where they could do that. And um, that has that caused problems in the past. And it's actually given as an example for why the federal system doesn't follow that model. I. I'm not 100% sure right now whether any of the states currently allow um, modification of judgments outside of, uh, outside of the judiciary. I should also add, though, that um, the federal system, we've been talking about Article Three courts. There are, of course, also Article I courts, all the administrative agencies that render judgments. Those judgments are different. They're actually not the product of the judicial power. They're the product of the executive power. So they can be modified um, by someone other than the agency that entered the judgment because they're just somewhere inside the executive power and Congress can probably even modify them. Um, we've just been talking about sort of the Article Three official federal judicial power. Well, thank you. Let's just, let's um, take a short break and then maybe that will be a good time to transition into uh, another issue that has been bugging me too and me for some time, which has to do with um, post-judgment interest. Uh, so let's take a little break if, that, if that's good folks and then we'll, we'll come back in a couple. All right, Andy, I, I am going to ask you a question that I think you already answered, but I just want to be crystal clear on the answer because it, it, it's very important in the Venezuelan context, I think. So 
Venezuela's bonds, uh, at least the vast majority of them, have these things called collective action clauses. And these collective action clauses, oversimplifying, allow for a supermajority of creditors in principal amount to cram down an agreement on a dissenting minority. So if I am in the minority and I fear that a supermajority might cram me down by agreeing to take, say, 30 cents on the dollar when I really want 100 cents on the dollar, my incentive should be to rush out and get a judgment. Because what I heard you telling me was that once I get the judgment, the supermajority cannot cram me down. That's, that's exactly right. So once you get the judgment, it's the judgment that entitles you to the money. You can enforce the judgment. At that point, you're no longer even seeking to enforce the contract. You now have a judgment. That's, that's your new entitlement. Um, and no one can modify that judgment. So if the supermajority tried to change the terms, they, they can change the terms of the, the, the contracts, but they can't change the terms of the judgment. This presumes um, that the, not your answer, Mitra's question, I should say, um, presumes an interpretive issue that I just want to flag. I, I, I'm not going to ask this as a question, I, but um, it is, what I hear you to be saying is that even if these collective action clauses explicitly allowed for the modification of judgments, if they said a supermajority can vote and modify not only the, the government's payment obligations to investors, but to modify any judgment entered thereon or something like that, even if the, the modification clauses said something like that, your answer would be the same, I take it. Yeah, that's right. We Parties can't modify judgments. It's just out of their hands any more than they can modify legislation. Now, they can contract beforehand to have to, to impose consequences on people who secure judgments, and then the supermajority subsequently changes the terms of the contract, and they think the person's entitled to only wh whatever you said, 30 cents on the dollar or something. And you could you could then bring a separate new enforcement action or a new new contract action against that party that had already secured the judgment and the dollars to sort of hand back uh, 70 cents on the dollar to the to the rest of the crowd to divvy up among them so that everyone gets 30 cents on the dollar or however you want to do it, but um, you can't modify the judgment. So Mitu's question, um, I think, leads nicely into the the discussion of post-judgment interest. So Mitu gave you the, the explanation for why um, a creditor might have incentives to rush out and file a lawsuit. And it would be to escape the effect of a, a modification vote that they feared was going to happen under the collective action clause. So if traditionally, the primary reason why creditors would wait rather than rush out to sue, or at least one primary reason, is that once you get a judgment, it takes forever to enforce it against a foreign state. And all that time, you're stuck earning the federal post-judgment interest rate, which is super, super low. It's basically like treasury borrowing costs low. Um, so if we can change gears and kind of exploit you for as long as possible while, you, while you're here, 
that seems like it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, a federal judgment is not a safe asset. It's a risky asset, especially in this context. So do you have a thoughts on why the federal post-judgment interest rate is so low? So it's a, it's a really good question. I don't know exactly why it's so low. Um, I, I have some theories, um, but, um, but I'm not 100% sure. So let me start by saying that um, fed, a, a number of federal courts have said it is very low, and a number of states have, uh, have adopted higher interest rates on the ground that they think that it is too low. Um, now, I think the reason, if I, as best as I can tell, the only justification I've seen for this is that um, even though in practice it is a high risk, uh, it's a high risk loan sort of, you're not going it, to, it takes a long time to recover the money, um, is that in theory, it's not that high of a risk. And that's because the court has already said you're entitled to the money and you're allowed to use all sorts of mechanisms like attachments and liens and garnishments to get the money. So you can go out and, and, and take affirmative actions in order to recover without even having to go through a lawsuit. Um, now, obviously, there are all sorts of situations where that's not going to help you very much. And I, I think foreign companies is really, uh, foreign companies or even foreign countries, those are really good examples. Um, and a person might still be judgment proof. But I think that's the, um, that's the best argument I've seen for that low rate. So Andy, if I were a creditor litigating against a foreign sovereign, could I go into court and say, look, judge, uh, Professor Hessig at UNC has talked about the rationale for why federal judgments usually carry a very low rate of interest. It's because you once you get a judgment, it's basically money good. But in the context of a foreign sovereign, we all recognize that it's very hard to get your money. And so therefore, Judge, we need a realistic rate of interest, which instead of, you know, 1%, it should be 11% or maybe 30% since it's the defaulted sovereign. D does that kind of argument have any hope of going anywhere? It, can, can they... Um, can the judge who is the master of the judgment modify the 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 interest rate on on a post judgment claim not not on a post judgment claim no the the amount of interest is set by federal statute and there are many cases in the federal courts saying that courts don't have discretion to modify it or just not to apply it um now, uh, parties can, under the current case law, parties can, ex ante, if it's in the contract, they can set a higher interest rate for post-judgment interest, but they have to be very, very clear in their contracts beforehand. It, it, the, the case law insists that the contracts be clear and explicit, saying that this is post-judgment interest and we want it at a higher rate. The courts have upheld those. So, okay, this is this is fascinating. I, I mean, I've learned so much, but this is um, beyond what uh, I'd even uh, hoped to learn. So, so it, let's say we have a provision that I haven't seen that often in uh, sovereign bonds 
these days, but used to be present in, for example, the Brady Bonds. Uh, Mark, I don't know if you remember this, but we, there they have uh, provisions for the post-default rate of interest. And um, now I don't remember whether those provisions specified whether it was pre or post-judgment, but would you be able to say that post-default rate of interest must mean post-judgment rate of interest? So I think that that wouldn't work. And that's because of the difference between pre-judgment interest and post-judgment interest. So the federal laws don't prescribe a set pre-judgment interest rate, or even say that you can get pre-judgment interest. Courts can award it at their discretion. And when they award it at their discretion, they've set rates all over the place, treasury, prime, some other rate. Um, but they have said that the parties can set it by contract. But that, but um, it's to be contrasted with post-judgment interest. The courts say, look, there is a statute here. And that's going to be the default rate. And we will let the parties apply a different rate, but they have to be very explicit that they are talking about post-judgment interest. So if you just said the post-default interest rate is X, 11%, say, um, I think courts would be extremely hesitant to apply that to post-judgment interest. And I guess I'm just, I'm, I had not given this any thought before, but um, maybe one reason for keeping a relatively low post-judgment interest rate is this, I would assume, indirectly sets the financing costs of an appeal, right? Because post-judgment interest is going to be accruing all the time that my appeal is pending. And so a super high rate, a rate that kind of reflects the riskiness of the asset would also make it really difficult to bond an appeal, I would assume. That could happen. That's, that's right. Um, sometimes appeals can take a while and uh, and that would definitely change the incentives. So Andy, um, I, I hope this is not going off on a tangent from where uh, Mark was planning to go, but um, your answers have made me think about a different question, which is, let's say that Mark and I both have uh, judgments and the sovereign Venezuela likes Mark and they don't like me. And so they, they, they pay Mark and they ignore my claim. Do I have rights uh, of equal treatment uh, against Mark? Can, can I, does my judgment allow me to go after Mark? And uh, just to make this hypothetical a little more complicated, Maybe my contract has rights that would normally allow me to go to go against Mark if he got a disproportionate payment. And I'm wondering whether those rights have basically been extinguished once we have judgments. Yeah, so Sorry if that was so complicated. No, no, it's it's a good question. Um, I'm gonna leave the contract aside at first and then I'll bring it in at the end in answering. Um, so ordinarily when two people get a judgment, say for separate torts or contract claims against uh, against a defendant, they, um, they're not entitled to equal treatment. People just can recover. So, uh, so what that means is that if you have multiple claimants, um, eventually the, the, the claimants who are further down the line might actually not 
get their recovery that they're entitled to under the judgment. Uh, and this, it, we see this with sort of standard issue corporate lawsuits um, when you have say 50, 60, 70 people who bring a claim against someone, um, you know, the first few people might get recovery and then the later ones don't. So, um, and, and there is no automatic right to recovery against Mark in that case, you're not entitled to equal treatment and he has the money and you don't. Uh, now, if you entered into a contract though uh, with Mark that says, hey, if you get a disproportionate recovery or if you recover and, 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 and I don't because they won't pay me at the judgment, you could bring still a separate contract action against Mark because that's not, that, that's not really having anything to do with modifying a judgment. That's just, if, if a certain condition happens, that is you recover and I don't, then I'm allowed to bring an action against you. Um, and so it would be a standard breach of contract action against Mark, but there's nothing inherent in the judgments and the actions against the, the sovereign that would entitle you to recovery against Mark. Andy, I have, um, I think at least one more question that I was hoping to ask in in the time that we have with you, but just to to sort of recap, um, because I think some listeners will be especially interested in the the sovereign debt connections here, and especially as it relates to Venezuela. Even if these collective action clauses purported to let investors collectively modify judgments, and they don't, but even if they did, that wouldn't work. And although there are these um, sort of contract workarounds where you could create intercreditor rights, um, you know, we kind of know what those look like and Venezuela didn't use any of them. You know, there are sharing clauses, which would be the kind of classic example where um, a, a creditor who gets a judgment could be sued by other creditors. I guess here's one, one question that I have. Um, and it's quite unrelated, but since we're, we're asking you to speculate, um, I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, what if retroactively we decided to add one of these intercreditor rights contract terms to the, the parties agreement? Would that change things? I assume that it would, right? If so, the majority of creditors, rather than agreeing to modify the judgment, which would not work, could agree to modify the contract so as to make a judgment holder share the proceeds of, proceeds of its recovery? What do you think of that? Is that permissible? It seems to me like it should be. The judgment would still be enforceable. It's just that you'd have to hand over part of whatever you collected. Yeah, I mean, I don't see an Article Three problem with that. The judgment would still be enforceable. You're not interfering with the judgment that has been issued by the court. Instead, you are just modifying the contracts between the parties. And uh, and if they're allowed to do that as a matter of contract law, then they the judgment would just it, it'd be to the side. It wouldn't be um, it it wouldn't be undermined by that contract provision is just the person who had collected on the judgment would be obligated to hand over some dollars. Well, thank you 
so much for for joining us um, and also at the end for solving I think the problem that has a lot of people worried which is not a problem that needs to modify judgments to it can be solved without claiming some power to dictate to courts what they have to do so that um that me too does not like optimistic notes to end on me too likes pessimism um that's the thing that he thrives on but maybe next episode we can have a dose of pessimism for you me too <laughs> this this was so so incredibly helpful i suspect it will be our uh, most listened to episode admittedly that means three listeners versus two but uh, th this this is uh, I I've heard so many discussions of this question, and they've all resulted in utter confusion at the end. And this was actually crystal clear. So, thanks so much, Andy. I hope we'll get you to come back on. Of course. I mean, if it's topics like this, I love topics like this. This is. <laughs> I mean, as much as you talk about sovereign debt, this is what I talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you Fantastic. Know.